All right, here's the premise. As you all know, multimedia, all-encompassing mega pop stars have existed since pre-World War II times, with singers and musicians appearing anywhere from movies to TV shows to commercial advertisements and, in the process, becoming pop culture idols in the process. It's a lineage that goes back from Frank Sinatra to Elvis Presley to the Beatles to the Monkees and the Partridge family, I guess. Anyway, however, the template for the modern-day pop star slash icon slash idol, you know, the rich and over-the-top and androgyny, glamour, vanity, and shameless self-promotion, that was arguably established in that oh-so-decadent decade of the 1980s. The holy trinity of this papapalooza, if you will, were inarguably Michael Jackson, Prince, and Madonna. Now, while the lovely Miss Ciccone deserves every bit of the legacy-enhancing accolades and respect that has come her way, including her place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, she has really never received the sheer unbridled reverence for her craft, her art, and her musicianship that the former two have received and continue to receive after their respective deaths. Maybe it's because she's a woman in a historically sexist industry. Maybe it's because none of her studio albums have garnered neither timeless respect from critics nor passionate love from music obsessives nor that talismanic tag of quote-unquote influential from music peers. In any case, it's the two African-American males in that 80s trinity that are generally regarded as the musical groundbreakers and innovators who, before hip-hop exploded in the second half of the 1980s, took quote-unquote black music, you know, R&B, soul, funk, the leftover remains of disco, to a stratosphere of unseen commercial heights, musical inventiveness, and overall artistic sophistication that continue to influence and resonate to this day. While Madonna's pop culture zeitgeist-making ranks right up there with Michael and Prince, what the latter two did musically established them as the twin towers of 1980s pop music. It didn't, help, it didn't hurt that a, a little thing called MTV was around to uh, beam their art and music to everywhere in the known globe. Now, many years ago, the comedian Chris Rock had a really good stand-up bit about young black music fans growing up in the 1980s. According to him, back then, you were either a Prince guy, quote-unquote, or a Michael guy. And with the immense and unfathomable success of Thriller, Michael may have won the battle, but in the long run, Prince won the war. At least that is what uh, Mr. Rock established. Well, years later, 
The curmudgeons will take up Mr. Rock's premise and produce a very special ongoing miniseries that we have humbly titled Prince versus Michael Jackson, of which this will be chapter one. Now, here's the premise. Chris is a massive Michael Jackson fan. I, on the other hand, find it unfathomable that anyone would think Michael is musically, artistically, instrumentally, lyrically, melodically, or in any other way better than Prince, who is undoubtedly one of the most singularly talented American musical geniuses of the 20th century, whose place is, in my opinion, comfortably alongside Miles Davis, James Brown, George Clinton, John Coltrane, and Chuck Berry, to name a few. Each episode of this little miniseries, not really little, it's pretty big, will proceed chronologically as a period of time is carved out and both artists' musical development is analyzed, described, compared, and contrasted. What's most striking about this endeavor is how both of these guys' careers and lives paralleled each other so uncannily from the beginning. Both were from the Midwest. Both grew up in troubled families. Both grew up listening to and loving the same music, although I'm not so sure Michael was as well-versed in P-Funk as, as Prince was. Both started to achieve solo success around the same time. Both had their biggest artistic achievements at the same time. Both started to commercially and artistically tail off at the same time. Both developed hardcore pill addictions in their middle age. And both died of heart failure. So, we hope you will all enjoy as we delve into chapter one of this surgical breakdown of these behemoths of not just black American music, but pop culture in general. On this episode, we will navigate the period of 1975 to 81. For Michael, it's him taking charge of the Jackson 5 slash the Jacksons, then slowly weaning himself off of them and culminating in his disco-funk classic album, Off the Wall. For Prince, it's his beginnings in the Minneapolis R&B club scene and culminating in the one-two electro-funk landmarks of Dirty Mind and Controversy. Don't stop till you get enough of this, baby. The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. I'm Christopher O'Connor, he's Arturo Andrade, and welcome to something we've been looking forward to uh, for a long time now. This is about three months in the works. Uh, Prince versus Michael, uh, two icons you know well, or at least you think you know well, 
And uh, we've got a uh, traditional uh, divide between us, uh, which we will uh, get into. So this will be uh, in the spirit of barroom ball busting and uh, light combat. And so we hope that you enjoy what we have here. Uh, Arturo, what do you, uh, what's on your mind and what's been going on, dude? It's summer. It's hot. And we're going to be hot and get hot at each other in this. Well, maybe not that hot at each other, but we're going to get a bit hot uh, emotion wise for this episode. Yeah. No, we, I, yeah. we clearly have our favorites. And yeah, I have yeah. other reasons. I have other, not just Prince and Michael. I have another reason to get hot and bothered and, and, and get curmudgeonly. But we'll get to that soon. Yeah, Arturo's in a bad mood, which makes for a great listen. Welcome to the Parallel Universe. Uh, this is our uh, every episode foray uh, into uh, a, uh, a netherworld and uh, into an outer space that uh, we like to contemplate. What if uh, rock and roll and the best music still mattered, still got distributed, and uh, you could still fill uh, stadiums with music that was actually awesome and mattered? And so uh, this is our usual uh, trip uh, through that. Although uh, this week is a little bit skewed. It's uh, par- even in a parallel universe, there are forces that push back. There are forces of tumult and there's plenty of reasons to be curmudgeonly. And so uh, with that, uh, I will kick it over to uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Grumpy here, Arturo Andrade. Yeah, yeah. We normally use this parallel universe segment to praise a new album by a band or artist that we like. For this episode segment, I want to do the opposite. I'm going to seriously take a shit on the new album by a band that I like, that I normally like, and then extrapolate that to a greater issue that has me wanting to get my curmudgeonly bitch on. Okay. Now, generally speaking, I'm a fan of Wolf Alice, the British band, Wolf Alice, and their usual mix of revved up punk rock, shoegazer rock, indie pop, and arena-ready alternative rock. Excuse me. I think their previous album, Visions of a Life from 2017, is actually one of the best albums of the last decade. I love that album. But this new album that just came out recently, Blue Weekend it's called, to me is an atrocity of continuously slow, mellowed out, ethereal slop, okay? Tight songwriting is something that this band showed continued improvement on from the first album onward. But man, have they abandoned that in favor of blissed out, airy fairy light as a feather indie pop this album is a fucking drag to listen to from start to finish with only a couple of tracks spread throughout that recall the pop rock smarts and hooks of their previous work instead of using the coronavirus lockdown to come up with something original and inspired 
Ellie Rousel and her band sound like they're happy to just mail it in. And the music critic Cognoscenti that usually kisses their collective ass will lap it up. Well, that's exactly what's happened. And this leads me to what really pisses me off. <laughs> okay. According to Metacritic.com, the, this new Wolf Alice album is the best-reviewed album of the year so far. And Having, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. I don't mean I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, all right. Uh, so with with Metacritic, uh, to give context, you always gotta uh, look at the number uh, of of reviews. Uh, yeah. And uh, chances are, the lower the number, the more British. Uh, but <laughs> so what's so what's the number of reviews that this is based on? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. It so far it has the highest aggregate score that can be given after reviews have been tallied. Here's the thing, and I looked it up. The vast majority of the reviews that have been entered for Wolf Alice have come from decidedly non-muso or non-music-centered British media outlets. There, like, there you go. Like the Guardian, the Independent, the Daily Telegraph, and of course the. Uh, rotting digital corpse of the NME. <laughs> uh, Mojo, on the other hand, the real music Bible for music nerds like us, gave the album a solid four-star review, but didn't really describe it as anything special. It didn't even give it one of their lead reviews. So why is an album that is so stale, so limp, so uninspired, so boring, and so lacking in any kind of creativity and energy why does it garner such high praise? Listen, maybe it's my old age driving me to say this, but I felt this way for almost a decade now. Are you ready for this, Chris? The current younger generation of music critics, in my opinion, have the most disastrously bland taste in music of any music critic generation since the pre-rock and roll era. Yeah, I, 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 I may this. I may actually agree with that. Plus, they also can't write or they uh, um, uh, if it's not beholding the power of the first draft, then I would be very, very afraid. Yeah. I mean, the millennial generation have been shit on for various reasons throughout the years. And I'm not normally the kind of person who does this kind of shitting. However, I make an exception here in this area. This new generation of music critics have tastes that are so wussy so bland, so lacking in any kind of edge or countercultural element. And when I say counterculture, I don't mean hippies or politics. I mean going against the grain of conventional society, not being so conformist. You know, it's interesting. I've met and have had conversations with plenty of people born in the 1980s and early 90s. Many of them are some of the most progressive-minded people I've ever met when it comes to political or social issues. But when it comes to music and what they listen to, many of them are so freaking conservative. And when I say conservative, I don't mean old-fashioned. I mean mainstream, streamlined, safe, conformist, and if I can use an old hipster jargon, square. <laughs> you know, they're so <laughs> square in their taste of music. You know, They're progressive in their politics, progressive in their social issues, but they like the most conventional, streamlined pop shit. There's no edge to their freaking musical tastes. And this carries over to the new generation of music critics. 
I really hope the so-called Gen Z, the generation after the millennials, I really hope they have some edge to them and their musical tastes that are a little more dangerous, a little weirder, a little stranger, and a little edgier. Okay, my rant's over. Chris, <laughs> on to you. You're, you're dead on about the, the, the new critics is that they, um, well, me as a professional writer, I mean, I, I, it just bugs me that they write so crappily. And so, yeah. you know, like beamingly, or they have this weirdy, weird bendy syntax with all these adjectives and, you know, it just, it just drips the saccharin. Uh, but it's worth mentioning that uh, the godfather for a lot of these guys is probably uh, Rob Sheffield of uh, Rolling Stone fame. Which is, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I hate to say that because Rob is a very good writer uh, and he's written some wonderful books. He's got a book called Dreaming the Beatles, which is one of the best uh, uh, musical uh, histor- historical analyses combined with memoir uh, I've ever read. However, uh, Sheffield's made a career lately of gushing over the uh, female pop starlets like Taylor Swift and now Olivia Rodrigo in a way that's almost embarrassingly fanboy, like he's the, uh, the president of the fan club of uh, Sean Cassidy, <laughs> you know, or, you know, the, it, it, it almost has that kind of uh, air to it. So I, uh, I, I've, I've always thought Rob Sheffield is shitty taste in music as well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well he, he doesn't, he doesn't because he's a, he's an REM acolyte, but uh, yeah, it's, it's strange. You need to listen I mean, to REM again. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as he gets older, uh, maybe there's a desire to stay contemporary, which, uh, as the music is not as good, uh, makes it kind of embarrassing. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's just kind of funny. We're in the parallel universe to uh, to take a shit, so it's kind of an interesting uh, an interesting dynamic. <laughs> okay, so for my uh, selection uh, this week. Uh, this may seem like damning with faint praise, but this actually is a very um, compelling record uh, worth listening to and probably deserves repeat listens uh, because the shtick here, there's a lot to miss on, on, first, uh, on first listen or on first examination. This is Dry Cleaning's New Long Leg. So on Dry Cleaning's new album, New Long Leg, Vocalist Florence Shaw offers a thought that might as well summarize this album. Emo dead, stuff, stuff, but emo dead Stuff Collector. Things come to brain. Spent 17 pounds on mushrooms for you because I'm silly. I call Shaw a vocalist rather than a singer. She's not a singer. She doesn't even try to sing. She doesn't even try to do the traditional spoken word thing in an orthodox sense. She just talks. She talks in a deep voice with a deeply British accent that sounds like she smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 10 years. And throughout the course of 10 songs and 42 minutes, she expresses thoughts and ideas that might as well be inspired by a dose of 17 pounds of mushrooms. Strangely enough, however, this works because the band behind her, the musical douse behind Shaw's considerably dry cleaning here, is quite compelling and quite good. It plays like a psychedelic tour through the last 40 years of British rock, though Johnny Marr is a clear influence. The musical accompaniment here is a series of melodic jangly tunes that seem to beg for an emotive singer in the vein of Sean Ryder of the Happy Mondays 
or Harriet Wheeler of the Sundays. Instead, these tracks get a striking juxtaposition. Buggy conversations from an artist who may not actually know what day of the week it is. Uh, This is meant to be more of a compliment than that descriptor suggests. New Long Leg just works and is pretty original uh, in its work ultimately. Uh, Some might accuse Shaw of ripping off Kim Gordon. Uh, The only difference here, though, is that Gordon was much more of a yeller whose music seemed designed to serve as more of an instrument. And Kim Uh, Gordon had talent. (laughs) Oh, in in your opinion, this 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 girl's got a, a an interesting shtick, and and uh, I guess she's got that uh, beatnik poet in her. But anyway, Gordon was not an anchor in a tidal wave, which is what Shaw seems to serve as here. Granted, it's a pretty out there anchor. I'll let Pitchfork chime in, that, quoting from a decidedly Pitchforkish voice, Ugh. but somehow managing to capture Shaw's thing very very well, quoting. On headphones, there's something almost ASMR-like about it, and not strictly in the textural way of recent pop production. Shaw is right in your ear, not with a flummoxing sound clip, but a picture you've never seen. The photographer looking at the literal junk in the margins. Sorry, I got a pop up here. Um, Rather than the hero at the center and locating a deeper truth. Unlike the distant cool of Kim Gordon's songs with Sonic Youth, Shaw appears intimate and almost mystical, like she's guiding a meditation class through the detritus of the mind. Speaking of which, here's my personal favorite detritus from Shaw. Anyway, mystical Shakespeare shoes, a trapped person screaming. The last thing I looked at in this hand mirror was a human asshole. Well, Helen's situation has really put all that in the shade now. There he goes. He doesn't care. Mostly angry, scrappy songs. And where does that jealous romantic jealousy come from? Te amo, Manuel. Married then. Her hippo. Every day he's a dick. Yep, hippos can be dicks in the, in the brand of the world that Dry Queen creates here on New Long Leg. Check it out. It's an oddly hypnotic uh, ride uh, through the slop of the mind. Yeah, I would like this band a lot more if they were an instrumental band. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think her vocals are the worst part of the group. Um, to me, it's just pretentious indie hipster gibberish. And it's just one non sequitur after another. Um, I think it just drags it down. The band, the band behind her is pretty good. You know, they, they, they're a groovy rock band. You know, it's, it's, it's indie rock with shades of psychedelia, shades of grunge here and there. Um, but it, they're good. They're a good band. They just either need to have a singer who has passion and has lyricism and, you know, can sing or just be an instrumental band like lightning bolt <laughs> you know? and uh, yeah. you know, screw it. And, and um, yeah, that, that's why, I mean, I can't really recommend this album because it's just, she takes away so much from this band. I don't think she adds anything to it. And yeah, this is just a band that I think uh, I really would either become instrumental or do something to change up or, kick her out of the group or have her learn how to sing a freaking song and have some lyrics that actually have depth to them. Uh, let us get into a very exciting in, uh, exercise for us, Prince versus Michael. Both of these guys, I mean, this is kind of like uh, the old Beatles and Stones record. There's really no wrong answer. However, uh, I am a Michael guy. 
in which I'll get into uh, for a little bit. And I'll admit a lot of that has to do with uh, my upbringing and there's a subjective uh, reverence there. But I also do believe that, look, Prince has the volume, but I also think that uh, Michael Jackson's uh, records, uh, starting with Off the Wall, and he had three or four albums that are just astonishing and are just basically perfect and revolutionized uh, everything uh, that came uh, after uh, after them. And I, I just think that, you know, Prince, yes, he did have three or four perfect records, but he also had a lot of stuff that, while admirable, was sort of put out there to be put out there. So um, did Michael, but by the time he got older. <laughs> yeah, well, but not quite as much. I mean, he... He well, kept he wasn't putting, as prolific, yeah. Yeah, he's nowhere near as prolific, and obviously there were diminishing returns as as he faded into drug addiction, depression, and had all of his legal troubles. Although there are a couple of kick-ass songs on uh, "Blood on the Dance Floor," uh, his uh, his disco record there from the late nineties. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna defend Michael as a talent, uh, as an icon. Uh, and as uh, one of my, and I know this sounds uh, creepy, but one of my heroes. Um, and, and so I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I'll be a counterpuncher because I know you're going to come on nastily. And not as much as you think, not as much as you think. Because when I start talking about Prince, I'm focusing on Prince. I'll make a few snide Michael comments while I'm talking about Prince, but not that much. Okay. I'm going to keep it mostly Prince. Yeah, and uh, oh, trust me, I'll, I'll I'll be snide as well. Uh, but yeah, like I said this this will this will be fun. Uh, you know, we're we're taking the positions here, and uh, it's reverence, but it's also thoughtfulness uh, yeah. coming from here. So yeah. really, really looking forward to this. And so uh, I might we might as well get into this. The Curmudgeon Rock Report isn't actually brought to you by Zencaster but it would probably suck a whole lot more if we didn't use this excellent podcasting service. Arturo lives in South Korea. Chris lives in Texas. We needed audio recording software that could record both of our voices natively, securely, cleanly, and professionally. We wanted to avoid Zoom like we would avoid Ed Sheeran. Zedcaster made that possible. With Zencaster, we each use one track to capture our vocals through our computers. Then we upload the individual tracks into Zencaster's built-in post-production engine. Finally, we export the combined, smooth track out to finish editing each episode. Zencaster works awesomely well for recording your interviews with guests, too. So visit Zencaster.com now and start doing your remote audio way better today. All right, Chris. We'll start with you and your, uh, your love affair with the pedophile. Let's start. Wow, that 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 is quite the image, especially since I'm uh, talking about Michael uh, from the age of six on. Uh, that's, uh, folks, uh, we are not sponsored by Nambla. Uh, I, I assure you that. And if you have any objections, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Now, that said, uh, Michael and Prince very much lived uh, and had parallel experiences. You had prodigies uh, growing up in the Midwest. Um, really, I think, Minneapolis and Chicago are only like 400 miles away from each other. So same region, uh, uh, black kids, 
uh, middle-class kids from uh, the Midwest uh, who had all that talent. Here's the difference. Uh, Michael was part of two machines. You know, Prince was always kind of his own uh, magnificent Loch Ness monster creature. Right. Uh, And I guess you could say that about Michael, but Michael was stuck in two machines. There was the family business. Uh, He was one of 10 children uh, born in August of 1958. Uh, This is a, the family grew up in Gary, Indiana. You had uh, the patriarch, Joe Jackson, who, as we've learned uh, from uh, multiple accounts from his wife, from Michael, and from some of the siblings, was pretty much a monster. Uh, maybe yeah. not Murray Wilson, but pretty close. Um, mm. And he saw the talent uh, that his kids had, especially Michael, for, even from an early age. I mean, he could belt. Uh, and so starting when Michael is six, we have this, uh, he gets inserted into a band that already included several of his brothers. They start playing around the Midwest, and within a few years, they quickly catch on. Uh, and they find their way into the second machine, which was Barry Gordy's Motown factory. Uh, and, you know, Barry Gordy is one of the great, most important figures in the history of uh, American popular music from the late 1950s on. He invented a blueprint for black uh, R&B popular music that was radio friendly and yeah. charismatic and uh he also, you know, obviously had that uh, bullpen of, of songwriters, which, you know, say what you want about the limitations on the artist, but guys like Holland, Dozier, and Holland were actually, and Norman Whitfield were damn good songwriters. Uh, that said, uh, they find themselves in the machine. Uh, Michael is this 11, 12 year old. It really starts when he's 11. Uh, Wonderkind. Uh, I just, have a question. I have a question about that Wonderkind status. Um at what no, question number one? At what point do you think Michael's siblings realized that Michael was not only the most talented member of the group, but by far the most talented and maybe the only talented one? And number question number two: How do you think they reacted to that at first? My speculation on that is when he was six. <laughs> and they started playing out uh, in public, and he joined the band. They were like, oh, shit, that kid can sing. He's charismatic as hell. He can, he dance. can dance. I mean, yeah. he's he's button cute. Um, and I think at first, you got to believe that the family was like, oh, shit, that, that, that's our meal ticket. That maybe Joe Jackson, even though he's whipping us with belts and uh, verbally abusing us and calling us ugly and uh, giving us lifelong scars uh, mentally and otherwise, uh, he's also got the weapon that's going to make us all famous and uh, at least bring in some money uh, for the family. So I got to believe at first they were like, oh, OK, this is this is great. You know, we'll we'll do our thing as a band because we know we're tight and we'll go with this and we'll let Michael do his thing and it'll take us to glory. And it did. Hmm. OK, so that- I'm, I'm curious the, the, the dynamic there. Like you have one guy who's so ast- one kid, really who's so astronomically talented and everyone, all the other brothers are like, eh, you know, <laughs> take them or leave them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, look, with the exception of Jermaine, uh, mm. by the late mid to late seventies, uh, they were all off the grid. Michael was uh, taking off and by then they were all resentful, but they spent 
30 something years or about 30 years looking for handouts and they're still looking for handouts. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've read that, uh, Catherine Jackson and, uh, uh, and, uh, her estate, um, uh, they really kind of have to beat these folks off with an ugly stick, uh, Jeez. because they come around and even Janet, cause you know, Janet made some pretty good money that, um, yeah. like Michael's estate and Janet have spent years, uh, having to say no to their brothers and sisters, uh, looking for, looking for loans. And there's uh, the other one. Janet is like by little Janet, by far the youngest. And she's like the second most talented member of the family. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so the kids, kids, like the yeah. young, like the youngest boy and the youngest girl end up being the most talented. Now, yeah. don't discount Jermaine. Uh, Jermaine did some great stuff in the mid, uh, mid 70s, some really great uh, disco uh, instrumental stuff. And then, of course, in the in the early 80s, he uh, I think he probably was quicker to the facelift than Michael. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, he, yeah, I think Jermaine was looking like he was uh, something out of a wax museum by 1983, uh, more than, more than Michael, but uh, be that as it may. Yes. So I think they all saw their mail ticket and they wrote it, obviously Barry Gordy, who, and his scouting folks who just knew talent when they saw it and, uh, collected it up, uh, they brought them into the machine. And so, you know, so Michael from 11 years old is a star. And right. a bright shining star, and so this uh, launches one of the great uh, uh, streaks in the history of pop music by any one artist, uh, being the Jackson Five. Right. They straddle 1970 and 71 with a couple of albums, and it's one huge iconic pop hit after another. Uh, thank goodness for orange juice commercials uh, because. <laughs> Uh, it's probably made some of these Motown guys and the Michael estate and, uh, or at least the songwriters a shitload of money in the 50 years since the love you save ABC, otherwise known as OPP. Uh, I want you back. Never can't say goodbye. I'll be there. Uh, and a few other uh, minor ones, but you can, you can see that. And I think that most of our folks, there's a few images that are burned in our brains of Michael. One of them is, uh, him in that in those wild, wild uh, sh- shorts and the powder blue pants and the hats, uh, you know, doing the little moves on stage. And here you have this little kid with this enormously expressive uh, falsetto, even at eleven. But it was more, uh, it was more sort of a less artistic singing and more orthodox. Like I'm gifted, like Frank Sinatra was gifted as a as an eleven year old kid. So he's at that point, he's playing it straight, but he's playing it straight or straight almost as well as anybody that age ever, I would yeah. say at this point. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And they knew what they had uh, for sure. And so while the Jackson 5 is going through their records, you know, they had the uh, animated show and they did all of the kiddie stuff. Uh, they're turning Michael into a preteen and then uh, young teen idol. And from that, you get four solo records which for the most part are terrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, got, got to be there, Ben, Music and Me, and then Forever Michael, which comes out when Michael is 16 going on 17. So that's ben, true. Ben is, ben is truly awful. Yeah, well, Ben, the song, I mean, look, it's about a boy and his rat that was uh, <laughs> attached to uh, an, a movie of the same name. 
I mean, look, there's probably only like one kid on the planet that could have made that meaningful and took it to the near the top of the charts. And that was Michael. Uh, anybody else, you would have been like, this is ridiculous. In Michael's hand, you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe there's some conviction, <laughs> you know, I, and I was saying, and that's one thing about uh, Michael that I should say here. Uh, he had a real gift uh, for emulating artists that he liked, then interpreting that artist's work in a stunningly original way, and then going further and splicing those influences and interpretations into an explosion of creativity and self-expression no one had ever heard before. And even at this point, he's doing it very subtly as a child and, and teen vocalist. I mean, he's still stuck in the machine, but he's finding ways to um, ways to uh, figure out how to do this. I mean, even with like Dancing Machine, uh, because... That's a, that's a great song. Oh, it's a great song. Uh, but even that, I mean... Pretty much, Michael, I mean, if anybody popularized the robot, it was him. Uh, that's another iconic image is of him and Cher uh, doing the <laughs> robot together <laughs> or, or her doing a dance routine with the uh, Jacksons. I mean, say what you want about Tito, Marlon, Jermaine, uh, Randy, and all those guys. But, yeah, they could all dance. I'll give them that. Uh, or, at le- or at least they can follow the same steps and, you know, let Michael be the star. I mean, they couldn't do the spin. Michael, even when he was 16, could do the spin. Uh yeah. So, and he, he had it and, uh, people also don't remember like during this teen idol phase, uh, even though he's stuck in the machine and pretty much hates it. Uh, he played the teen idol part really, really well. He's a good looking guy. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. yeah, he had one of the best afros of that ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, he wore the suits really well and he just had that charisma, which even. makes all, which makes all those future plastic surgeries such a shame. Oh, I know. I mean, it's, you know, who, who understands that body dysmorphia shit? You know, I, I don't understand it, but, and, you know, we'll, I guess we can get into that here, uh, that, uh, Michael had a lifelong unhealthy obsession with his nose, which biographers and journalists have, uh, traced to Joe Jackson goofing on him, having this wide two African looking nose. Um, which, you know, look, I mean, no big deal. I mean, he was a handsome guy, but he had this thing. And then of course, in 1979, uh, in the middle of a routine of some kind, he breaks his nose Mm. and, uh, therein uh, is his introduction to rhinoplasty and which is all downhill from there. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much by the end of his life. No joke. He actually had to wear a prosthetic tip to his nose because, uh, well, there's speculation. He always said he only had like two or three nose jobs, but bullshit. probably bullshit. But uh, other, uh, my old friend Brian Hyatt wrote an extraordinary article after his death that talked about this history. Uh, there is a plausibility to it because you have a couple of uh, nose jobs. Uh, the cartilage can break down. I mean, this has happened to some people where they basically lose most of their nose because of a uh, malpractice uh, rhinoplasty. And so it is plausible that he had two or three, but that his nose spent uh, uh, 25 years just disintegrating. Uh, me personally, I think that's bullshit. Uh, I think that, yeah, he, he did have um, an unhealthy plastic uh, surgery addiction. And, you know, it's, it's really too bad. But at this point, this is all the stuff that makes me defend uh, Michael. It's, it's the charisma, it's the performance, but it's also just the musical uh, genius. Uh, 
which again, I, I think because of the pop machinery, because of the, um, the teeny bopper media, uh, because of the growth of, uh, music video. I mean, uh, you, you've seen the video for dancing machine, right? Sure. Which, yeah. Which is just silly. I mean, it, with the, the outer space motif and, all, you know, and then just that uh, image of them performing on stage, but they all look like they're like psychedelic, like <laughs> traces. Uh, it's, it's completely ridiculous, but it's great. Uh, people were just, I don't think we're taking it seriously enough and, and looking into it. Yes. All time, great pop songs. You know, everybody knows those congas and, and all that, but, uh, I almost wonder given what you started to see in the mid seventies, uh, when the Jackson five leave Motown after a dispute right. and they end up on Epic records. I almost wonder if like Michael would be in the studio and they would be doing all that bass and conga shit. Michael would be like, no man, do it this way. You know? And cause he had the well, years. It's weird. It's weird by 75, 75 is when the 1975, when they left Motown went to Epic and that's when Michael gradually took over leadership and became the chief, you know, writer. Yeah. But then ironically, he took over leadership of the group, but ironically, that's when he started to wean himself out of the group. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. And you, you almost wonder, because you got to remember, uh, Michael Jackson is the guy that became friends with Paul McCartney and then uh, bought, oh. bought the the, uh, the Beatles uh, songwriting publishing catalog out from underneath McCartney at auction. So. Yeah. You know, Michael was a fucking ruthless guy. I mean, he's, yeah. you know, everybody talks about Kobe as the Black Mamba. Uh, Michael Jackson was like, like Michael Black Mamba times 10. He might as well have been like uh, a giant King Cobra from a Japanese movie. I mean, that guy was nasty. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was plotting all this and using his brothers to get to the point where he could do his own thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so so he, he gets on Epic and... He, he wasn't, he didn't write that much, but the stuff that was original to the group, he wrote all of that. Um, the first record uh, uh, that they did was mostly produced by Gamble and Huff, which, you know, shouldn't be a surprise because between like 1974 and 1977, it seems like Gamble and Huff uh, produced yeah. half of black music, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, for the love of money and a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, and uh, uh, Love Train and TSOP and all that stuff. And so it's a very Gamble and Huff sounding uh, record or those first couple. But the stuff that Michael does write is probably the best stuff on those records. I mean, I always say these about the Quincy Jones records too, is that uh, for as much as Rod Templeton was a good songwriter, the guys from Toto or uh, uh, what what's his, well, McCartney Wonder, and uh, a few of these uh, pros, the best stuff on those records uniformly and without question is written by Michael. And so I'll give you an early example of this, uh, the song, do what you wanna, uh, which you listen to it and it's just very, uh, it's almost a lark from Michael and it under, it shows that he has an understanding of uh, pop tradition and how smart he is. It's very teeny bopper. It's, you know, like you can snap your fingers and smile and kind of, you know, dancing man. And it, it almost comes from the uh, tradition of uh, the early black Motown singers that were out there basically doing minstrelsy for uh, for white folk. Uh, but it also has a lot of the uh, Michael trademarks. And so here you have this teeny bopper, very 50s uh, snap do 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 kind of song. 
but you get the funky striking creative baseline. You get that expressive near falsetto with just flawless uh, melodic uh, placement. And, you know, you get those vo vocal over overdubs that Michael liked to put in there for uh, those, those harmonies, uh, you know, most famously, or in my mind is working day and night. Uh, it, it has that kind of effect. That's so you're, good song. I like that song. Yeah. Oh, it's my, that, that's my favorite Michael song um, that he wrote. Uh, yeah. But so you're, you're hearing hints of that already. And, and there's that n pretty nasty edge. And, you know, I got to say for a guy who is either asexual off drugs or was just a natural guy had a, or had a naturally creepy fascination with children. In other words, he was a natural born pedophile who knows, or the drugs. Which I believe, I believe he was that probably. Um, but you know, there's also speculation it's been written and I don't know if it may be bullshit, but somehow, uh, Joe Jackson had him chemically castra uh, castrated as a kid so that he could keep the voice. Um, Jeez. that's in the Wikipedia uh, entry. And again, you know, I haven't, I didn't want to <laughs> research that further, to be honest with you, because that would be disturbing. Uh, but he also just had this gift for translating raw male sexuality to tape, uh, and capturing that. And it's, it's, it's unbelievably, um, so it's unbelievably. So, so here, even during this Jackson's period where, you know, they're leaning on Gamble and Huff and they're basically, they're still kind of a boy band, but they're all adults at this point, um, with the, the wide collars and the afros and all that. Um, Michael is genius is crap, uh, is creeping in. He's obviously the star. Um, yeah, you know, and I would imagine by this point, the, uh, the other guys are kind of starting to say, what the fuck, <laughs> you know, and, uh, if they were jealous, I mean, who knows, or, I mean, look, Tito Jackson might've been a pretty good bassist or whatever, but I mean, come on, it's like Tito going to actually be jealous of Michael. It's like, look, I'm short, I'm fat, I'm a bassist and you know, I'm just, I'm not him. So even by that point, maybe defeat was, uh, was setting in. So that that's the setup. Uh, and then you get to the late seventies when Michael right. is in a position to say, you know what, fuck all that. I'm going to do my own. Uh, I have my own ideas. Uh, I have my own energy. And, uh, this is, he's spending a lot of time in New York in studio 54. He's become friends or he's been, uh, connected with Quincy Jones. You know, Quincy Jones is famous for, uh, basically being a bossa nova guy and a jazz guy. And yeah. a contemporary of uh, a lot of those uh, Rat Packers. I mean, basically, he was kind of the token black guy in the Rat Pack. Yeah. Uh, well, like the Sammy, other token black guy. Excuse yeah, me. Sammy Davis, right? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, the black Jew. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and then, yeah, exactly. And Quincy Jones was kind of an honorary member of, of that. So that's sort of what he was known for. But he also just had um, pop sensibilities. And so you get uh, Quincy Jones... Uh, musical talent and you know ability as an arranger and uh, a set of ears uh, and you put him with Michael who is so funky I mean the mud is practically dripping off his butt uh, and you put them together in a studio and out comes off the wall which I would say and also remember during this time too that Michael's also positioning himself as a star through movies I mean he does the whiz which uh, flopped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it flopped. Uh, you know, you, you got to give it up for them giving it a shot. Uh, and so, you know, it's all these like black uh, musical, mostly musical icons, plus Nipsey Russell, go figure. Uh, 
And uh, it's, it's, it's what was Diana Ross as Dorothy and Michael as the Scarecrow. Yeah, and it was uh, Nipsey as the Tin Man, and I can't remember who the uh, who the, the lion. lion was, but uh, assume it was a fairly big guy from the Motown uh, tradition. I'd, I, I, who cares? I mean, that's that's another research spot that can that can go. We'll we'll let the listeners do the digging. Uh, so this all sets up again off the wall, uh, which to me. I don't know why I do this, but I was born in September of 1975. Uh, I'm three weeks older than Arturo here. And I like to do this. Okay. What are the greatest albums in my lifetime? Because if you figure about most of the great rock and roll albums of all time that make the lists uh, are older than us. And so I like to do this. So since 75, obviously the list gets thinner, but what's on it Uh, in my opinion, off the wall, maybe, uh, the best uh, popular music album made uh, since I've been alive. Uh, it's up there. There's a short list. London Calling, Octung Baby, uh, Nevermind, um, Right in the Corners. and off, off, the, off the Wall, as, as great an album as it is, wouldn't even be in my top 30 of since 1975. Okay, well, for purposes of this episode, how many Prince albums would be in your top 30? Uh, I would put um, maybe two, maybe two. Yeah. Hold um, off on, hold, hold off on it. Uh, because yeah. I, w- I want you to have your thunder, but yeah. maybe two. And you know, me personally, I would have the one, uh, and then one that comes pretty close, uh, subjectively, at, at least yeah. on my favorite list. Uh, it's in the top five. So we get to off the wall and it's almost an insult to call it disco. I mean, they're, I guess, ostensibly they're working in a disco uh, format, but it transcends disco even while capturing the disco ethos and really just blows it away. I mean, I don't think anybody had ever heard anything like it. I don't think anything like it has been made since. I think there's been a lot of attempts to capture this, some of the stuff, but it just hasn't gotten there. It's just a pop uh, music tour de force. Uh, just the beginning of the record, uh, the beginning baseline, uh, the little uh, sexual uh, pillow talk, the uh, the first ooh, you know, the I can't do it, so I'm not going to try. But the <laughs> woo, okay, that that that's my best attempt at a Michael falsetto. But then you know it kicks into "Don't Stop Till You Get Enough," and you get this clipped falsetto, this extraordinary expression, uh, and of the sentiment of the lyrics, uh, you know, the, even his low end, which at that point is like a low end falsetto, but it, man, it's almost like barbed wire, uh, in its, uh, in its emotional tone. And, uh, you just get this, you know, the strings, uh, the bridge with that like, uh, oddly fuzzy, uh, guitar effect. And then the outro, which is just incredible with that, you know, little clapping, uh, conga percussion skittering thing that goes out uh, into the fade. Amazingly, this is not, I mean, a lot of folks are like, this is Quincy Jones uh, doing his thing, but I've heard, have you heard the demo? No, I've never heard the demo. No. It's in spirit. It's not that far off. It's Quincy Jones and the professionals, uh, studio musicians, bringing it to like pure, artistry and, and pure virtuosity, but his demo 
all of the skits are there. All of the bass stuff is there. You know, the rhythm is in place. The bones are there. The skeleton is there. The, the, the tempo is all there. Uh, so that's like, you know, Michael, uh, he wasn't a great player, but he could play. And he had, he knew what he wanted. And so it's interesting because in his career, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson co-produced the records. And, you know, Quincy Jones is more of the overseer of that. But his stuff, he was in charge and telling Quincy what he needed. And he was in there uh, bark, basically barking orders and like telling these guys, you know, he was a dog years type of guy. Um, in a lot of ways, I think he was a Brian Wilson. Uh, there's a, a, a moment in uh, the film, and I've reviewed it uh, a while back on one of our episodes about concert films. Uh, this is it. There's a moment in there where he's him and his musical director are having a conversation during rehearsal. And the musical director just outright says, he just says, man, uh, you just tell me what you want because you're the only one that can hear what you want. I can't hear what you want. I don't have that ability. But if you just tell me what you need or what you're hearing, I'll get you there. But I just don't have the talent. Uh, you know, kind of an admission and shrugging his shoulders. And so it's kind of an extraordinary moment. So you go through this record and you know one of the, the striking parts of it is there's a Wings cover and there's a Stevie Wonder cover. And, okay, so you're thinking like, oh, oh, geez, you know, bringing on this, you know, uh, trading on goodwill of legends or whatever. But he turns the wing song into a Michael song because of his vocals and those harmonies and really capturing the doo-doo-doos. And then the Stevie Wonder song just has a sultriness that, yes, I mean, Stevie was capable of it. And it probably would have been more layered and had more of the synth going on and all of that. But Michael turns it into this really sensual, uh, um, again, you know, Michael was a master of baseline arrangements, uh, and you, and you, you get that. So it's, it's nine songs, uh, in and out of disco, uh, you get the pop song by Rod Templeton, uh, rock with you, uh, which again, you know, has a lot of iconic stuff, great singing. And then even the ballad, my least favorite song on that record, and probably yours too, is she's out of my life. But you do have to give it up for the vocal take, <laughs> you know, like he's he's literally like, man, he he really uh, is missing that is. Oh, man, he wants that chick back. And he's just remembering everything and he's practically crying. And so it's a really compelling vocal performance of a really garbage song. <laughs> yeah, he's, he was probably imagining you know, a little eight year old girl. Well, actually, maybe a boy because he was into little boys. That's probably what he was imagining when he was in the in the studio in the vocal booth. Man, we are going to get in so much trouble here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the scary part is that may actually be valid. Uh, so, but here we have, like I said, nine songs, economy, really creative. Uh, I mentioned before, Working Day and Night is probably my favorite Michael song because man, what a funky song. Uh, and that's where Quincy Jones was able to meld with Michael putting in that little uh, horn arrangements on the bridge with the skittering. Uh, again, these sort of like really, uh, you know, sort of uh, unique uh, Michael uh, rhythms. Okay. Bo Diddley had his rhythm. Johnny Cash had his rhythm and Michael had his rhythm. Uh, and it's so did Prince. So did Prince. Yes. And, and so did Prince, but and well, and that's the thing. So they all had that distinct, but man, Michael Jackson, uh, you just know, uh, like his his beat and he's got just 
lots of forms of it. You know, uh, Smooth Criminal is an example, wannabe starting something. There's this, uh, he just has this um, skitter in his mind and he could just control that skitter um, just in a genius way. So I'm extremely complimentary of, of off the wall. Again, this is, he becomes sex symbol. He becomes superstar at this point. Uh, he, he sweeps up at the Grammys uh, in 1980. Uh, and, and so he's on his way. And the scary part is, is for like 99% of the universe off the wall would be the peak. Yeah. Uh, artistic accomplishment, pop accomplishment, uh, sales accomplishment. It's, it's many times platinum itself. I don't yeah. think it ever reached diamond, but it got way up there. It did. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. It says something about the, the guy's ambition. It went nine times platinum in the U.S., six times platinum in the U.K., yep. platinum in a bunch of other countries. He had two number one singles in the Billboard pop charts, uh-huh. the, those, the first two songs on the album. He had two number one hit singles, not just in R&B, but in the pop charts. And Michael Jackson still thought the album undersold and underperformed. Yeah. Well, it's not yeah. so, it's not so much. Yeah. He, he thought it undersold. It was, he had that much pride and that much confidence in his ability. And, uh, but he also was like, Oh, I can do better. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> you know, it's like you, you make one of the great uh, albums of all time and one of the most important albums of all time. And it's like, okay, Oh, I can do better than that. On this episode, we finally got around to the first series installment of our eternal debate between the greatness of Prince and the supposed greatness of Michael Jackson. For the next episode, there won't be much of a debate as to the overall craptastic nature of the bands we're about to talk about. A few weeks ago, we did an episode called Death by Nirvana, in which Chris and I did a grisly body count of all the bands whose careers were either drastically altered forever or just destroyed by the alt-rock revolution and carnage that Nirvana wrought. As a follow-up to that, our next episode will scour the rock landscape from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s for all the terrible bands that came in Nirvana's wake and put the worst of all connotations to the words alternative and grunge. It wasn't just Nirvana that inspired this milieu of mediocrity, however. Some of these bands spent significant amounts of record label money doing bastardized, corny, watered-down versions of Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains as well. Were these bands bad enough to make us yearn for the days of glamorous, hairspray-soaked ass rock? Not really, but they were pretty shitty nonetheless. Join us on the next episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report as we get our hands dirty and eviscerate the grunge and alt-rock wannabes known as the dregs of Nirvana. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at, at curmudgeonpod. Now for uh, this, uh, for our uh, early stage Prince apologism, Arturo, uh, tell oh, us yeah. about Prince. All right. This is Prince from 1975 into 1981. Um, throughout the course of this Prince versus Michael series, and I think I speak for you as well, Chris, I really don't want to delve too much into biography, although I will in some spots, but not too much. Um, this comparative exercise is about, first and foremost, these guys' music. It's greatness, or at least it's high and low points, 
its influence and how it, along with these dudes' iconography, defined an era and influenced multiple generations of musicians and artists. The baby boom, like you said earlier, the baby boomers had the Beatles and the Stones. Gen X and Y had Prince and Michael Jackson. Indeed. And there's a, re- and there's a reason why Prince's name comes up first. <laughs> and I'm going to explain why. Oh, 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 um, oh okay. Uh, I, I just thought it sounded better than, Mike, than Michael versus Prince. No, no, it's he, better branding. Better branding and just, just overall better artistry. Now, oh, that, being oh, said, oh. that being said, here's a brief overview of Mr. Rogers Nelson's career. Prince Rogers um, Nelson. Prince Rogers Nelson from its nascency up to the Twin Towers of Dirty Mind and Controversy where Prince became Prince, capital letters. Is nascency a word? I believe it is, yes. Nascent is the adjective, nascency is the is the noun. Okay, I, I, I got to look this up. I've never heard nascency. I've heard infancy, but not nascency. So anyway, yeah, but you're the English teacher. That's right. <laughs> All right, well, Prince got his foot into the Minneapolis R&B music scene in 1975 at the age of 17 when his cousin's husband, Pepe Willie, great name, formed the band 94 East. And while he wasn't officially a member of the band, even at this young age, Prince contributed guitar parts to many of their recordings, and he co-wrote several songs. A local producer named uh, Chris Moon helped Prince record a demo in 1976 that got no traction. Print, uh, Moon then passed Prince on to a local businessman named Owen Husney, who signed Prince to a management contract in 1977 and funded another demo recording at Minneapolis's legendary recording studio, Studio 80. The second time was the charm, as Prince attracted major label attention and eventually signed with Warner Brothers. On to Southern California went the young Mr. Nelson, where he wrote, produced, arranged, and played every single instrument on the debut album, For You, released in 1978. Which is a pretty good record, but it's it's a precursor. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's starter kit Prince. Uh, it and, really is. And and maybe yeah. I always wondered if like that was like A A and R shackles and chains. Kind of because it was an album that not only was very much of its time, but of its place. Uh, it was definitely in tune with the synth-toned, that R&B, soft funk, pop sound of Minneapolis, circa late 1970s, evoking contemporary bands and acts such as Aura and Cohesion. <laughs> I guarantee you this is the only podcast where the Minneapolis band's aura and cohesion will be name checked. Yes, I was gonna. I was gonna say this is uh, uh, when we talk about Prince's influences. Uh, yeah, they 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 literally do a little off the off the grid. Yeah, and the album sold okay. Nothing special, especially considering how much money Warner Brothers spent on the recording. Nevertheless, like you said, Chris, you can hear the germinations of the future Prince sound with his sharp ear for arrangements, crisp sound, and badass guitar playing. A lot of a lot of really like badass guitar playing on this album, more so than on the next one. 
Prince finally made noise and became an R&B soul star in 1979 with the release of his follow-up album simply titled Prince in fall of that year. The album hit number four on the Billboard R&B charts thanks to the success of his first big hit, the infectious I Wanna Be Your Lover, which topped the R&B singles charts and went as high as number 11 on the Billboard pop charts. Yeah, great song. Yeah, great song. Um, the whole country finally got a chance to see what this little pint-sized dynamo looked like when he made his first ever national TV appearance on Dick Clark's American Bandstand in January of 1980. Now, now this is one thing that um, uh, I'll interject on this. Uh, I can just imagine... Uh, because we were kids, and so we, we didn't have this experience. But you can imagine being an adult and actually seeing uh, a late teen, or well, actually early teen Michael Jackson or Prince on television yeah. for the first time. Yeah. And you're just like, what in the world is this? Uh, even if you hated it, you had to kind of be jaw-dropped. And, I, I, and I'll let you uh, explain this Dick Clark appearance because it's hilarious. Uh but, oh, go, go. you explain it. Go ahead. Well, I mean, essentially, it's um, Prince doing uh, Prince's shtick where he goes out there, does the performance. But uh, for most, you know, Dick Clark tries to interview him and Prince maybe what said about four words uh, <laughs> yeah. the entire time. I think I think at one time, you know, they, you know, they say uh, uh, Prince uh, Dick Clark asks him a question and his answer is just flashing like four fingers. Uh, to the camera and then just kind of having this like distant, maybe not stoned look, but you know, that classic like Prince look that everybody goofs on, you know, that, that sort of thousand yard stare with the, uh, the, with the, with the come hither. I don't, I don't think it was shyness either. I think that was very much Prince creating his persona. Yeah. He was fucking, yeah. Prince always knew what he was doing. He was fucking around. And he he was a smart dude. (laughs) He he knew what he, he was building a mythology and a, and building, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, well, yeah, well, well, he's been well mythology, but he was also kind of well, he's building a persona, an uh, aura, a mystique yeah. about him. Yeah, he had the mystique and, and the and the aura, and uh, well, he had a sense of humor. Like you hear all these stories about him, uh, and he he just had this, uh, like he had the swagger of a basketball player, and you know, obviously that Chappelle bit, but uh, yeah. but you know, he just. I know he was a he was a shit talker and and he, almost like a prankster. It was almost like a put on. So anyway, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, this album, again, produced, arranged, performed, written solely by Prince. You know, unlike Michael, you know, uh, he doesn't need help. Here is where he graduates from Minneapolis and starts to flaunt his patented sound and style. Sharp songwriting, indelible pop hooks, funk grooves that remain sharp despite the disco gloss, love ballads that manage to avoid banality, guitar virtuosity, increasingly sexualized and saucy, racy lyrics, and eclecticism and song style that predicts a mastery of versatility. All the ingredients and hallmarks of future greatness are all audible on this album. However, all this pales in comparison to the gigantic leap he would make on his next album. Yeah, uh, more than a gigantic leap, it's it's like a uh, intergalactic 
yeah. uh, leap, which, you know, is not saying that, that the, the self-titled, I mean, that's like an underappreciated masterpiece. Uh, one thing I will say, by the way, uh, Michael didn't really need help. If you've heard those demos, he just wanted it and it made yeah. him that much better. But, but be that as it may, no, he wasn't the, the, uh, he wasn't Quincy Jones, but he, he could have done his own thing. Anyway, go ahead. Well, Prince was Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson wrapped up in one. Now, yeah, uh, that's that's a fair statement. You know, recorded rather quickly between May and June of 1980 in Prince's home studio and released in October of that year, the music that would make up the album Dirty Mind had an odd, minimalist, almost demo quality. And this was the first indication that Prince was cooking up something that was not only a total departure from what his Minneapolis scene peers were doing, but also different from what anyone in R&B, soul, and funk was doing at the time, including Michael Jackson. Uh, the second indication of Dirty Mind's otherness was its unique, visionary blend of danceable, raw funk, new wavy electro rhythms, and impeccable, hooky, pop songwriting. Other artists in the world of R&B and soul came close to this kind of concoction, most notably George Clinton and Rick James. But none of them did it with the directness, the clarity, and the immediate freshness that Prince brought to the table. On Dirty yeah. Mind, here, here's the one of the most interesting things about it, what makes it so extraordinary. The best songs on it, in my opinion, are the title track, which has this unbelievably minimal uh, yeah. uh, electronic drum part with this little uh, keyboard loop, you know, mixed in with that falsetto and the uh, uh, teen, teenage lust uh, going on. Uh, and then Head, uh, which, you know, I mean, come on, use your imagination. We know what that yeah. song's about. And that's, well, that that's what at the time everybody was fixated on. It wasn't the music. It was the... Uh, all the oral and anal sex or whatever you want to say, uh, allusions to it. Uh, so those are the best songs. Biggest hit on it was made famous by Cindy Lauper. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you were mine, uh, yeah. which, you know, it's might as well be the go-go's and it's girl groups and, uh, and just kind of invented a, um, it's, it's, it's weird. It's almost, it's R and B mixed with almost like a surfy, like beach boys kind of thing. It's like, a, yeah. it's like this California pop tune is like filtered through, uh, the, uh, the songsters of the mid seventies, you know, like kind of the black uh, songsters of the seventies. So it's, uh, it's, it's phenomenal, but I just always like to mention that, that Cindy, uh, most people when they, you know, if they say, well, what, what can you tell me about dirty mind? Oh, it's, oh you remember Cindy Lauper's when you were mine? Oh yeah. That it originated there. So it's, just kind of, kind of always been funny to me, but yeah. uh, do do continue. Yes. Well, like I said, first indication that Dirty Mind is some other interplus, something from another planet. You know, you, you have the sound of the record, you have the song, the, the really amazing songwriting, and this and the genre versatility. The third indication, Chris, as you said, was its lyrical content. Now, even back in 1980, racy lyrics weren't new in so-called black music. Prince, however, upped the ante with songs blatantly describing, and in some cases glorifying, oral sex, like in Head, like you mentioned, threesomes, incest, like in the song Sister. <laughs> you know, And Prince did have an older sister. I wonder, it makes you wonder if like, 
this is actually biography, you know? You know? Yeah, seriously, is this autobiography? And then, you know, and then you've got downtown, which almost makes me wonder if that's about the gay scene down there, you know? You know, I'm going to get to downtown in a moment, all right? I'm going to get there. It's not about the gay scene. I'm going to tell okay. you that right now. Okay. okay. Anyway, anyway, the, the uh, that unabashed, salacious sexuality of the lyrics were really standard setting for its time. And they kind of paved the way for the much more frank sexual content in pop music for years to come, right? Now, all of these aspects were enough to make Dirty Mind a revolutionary album. But it was Prince's image at the time that put everything over the top. You know, this early 1980s period saw Prince take the stage as reflected in the album cover for Dirty Mind, wearing bikini briefs, high heels, an open trench coat, and nothing else. <laughs> yep. he, was, he was boldly and proudly sexy. He was androgynous. He was irresistible to women. He was intimidating to aspiring Casanovas. And overall, he was a dangerous threat to the straight male patriarchal view of what masculinity was. Yeah, and, and in a way, he's my hero. Because what was he officially listed at? 5'2"? 5'3", maybe. Which yeah, is he probably, was a short dude. Which was probably bullshit. He was probably more like 5'0", five, 5'1". Oh, five, you know, yeah. but he, yeah, he, you know, he's one of these guys. Yeah, who cares if I'm this short? I'm a sexy motherfucker, as he would yeah. say in 1993. <laughs> 92, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. He became he famous in 93. <laughs> sexy yeah. motherfucker. Pick the nits, right. pick the nits. <laughs> Anyway, the, the the innovative music, the funk, the musicianship, the songwriting, the lyrics, the looks, the sexuality, the badass element of danger to conventional society, Prince had it all and even more so than any, literally any of his R&B soul funk peers, including Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson fucking knew it too, all right? Um, the album, Dirty Mind, peaked modestly at number 45 on the Billboard pop charts and number seven on the R&B charts, but it received rave critical reviews that described it as a seminal musical moment at the beginning of the decade, which is exactly what it was. The lead single, Uptown, the one you mentioned, Chris, was not only an R&B dance floor smash peaking at number five in the R&B charts, but it was Prince's first foray into socio-political commentary. If you listen to the words, the uptown mentioned in the song can, can be interpreted as not just a place to party and meet girls. It's a metaphor for the panacea that humanity should aspire to. It's a place that's free of racism and prejudice. And it's actually pretty explicit if you read the words. You know, the yeah, absolutely. The prejudice is there. It's kind of like Curtis Mayfield's "People Get Ready" with more sex and more funk. Yep, pretty much. Yeah, I, actually, that, that's a pretty good descriptor. Oh, by the way, for what it's worth, uh, you can tell I'm Team Michael because uh, in my mind, Uptown became Downtown. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I got to call myself out on that. Um, anyway. <laughs> anyway, Prince followed up the landmark "Dirty Mind" with "Controversy" in 1981 which at first listen seemed like Dirty Mind Part 2. However, dig into the album and you'll find some of the best songs of this early period of Prince's. 
The title track is a savage funk jam that manages to have the most blissfully beautiful pop chorus imaginable. Controversy, the song, hit number three on the R&B charts and number 70 in the pop charts. Uh, The album, Controversy, also has the dance floor cracker, Let's Work. It's got more righteous political commentary, this time about the Cold War. Ronnie talked to Russia, obviously, about Ronald Reagan and his feud with the Soviet Union. And a continuation of Dirty Mind's seething sexuality with the wonderfully and blissfully titled Jack You Off. (laughs) The album hit number three on the R&B charts and more importantly went all the way to number 21 on the Billboard album charts. This led to a slot opening for the Rolling Stones on the U.S. leg of the Tattoo You Tour. Uh, This, of course, would be the precursor to the massive mainstream breakthrough that Prince would achieve in the next few years, establishing him as one of the premier pop stars of the decade and one of its most important musical figures as well. One important thing to notice about the Prince opening for the Stones, when he opened for them in Los Angeles, he was not received well by Rolling Stones fans. Um, he was wearing his trench coat, bikini briefs, high heels outfit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think at that point, that's uh, that must have been a great show to be a fly on a wall on, you know? Yeah, he got booed on. He got booed off the stage. Stuff was thrown onto the stage. Prince and his band had to leave the stage. And then uh, the promoter for the show. Bill Graham. Bill Graham, yes. Bill Graham had to go on stage and castigate the audience uh, for booing Prince, saying, you people, you're going to be paying good money to see this, see this guy in the next few years. And he was right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway. And, and, that's a good, and that's a good segue into what we'll be talking about uh, uh, in uh, his 80s. That's a good setup. That, uh, yeah. hey, but I'm not, I'm not done yet. You're not, not done, done yet. yet. You're not done no, yet. No, 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 no. To finalize all this and to bring this all in comparison to Michael Jackson, um, before I talked about the sexuality, Prince's seeding sexuality, Michael Jackson had that too, for sure. He definitely did. But Prince was the real deal when it came to that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> which, which, it, it oozed out of that dude without even talking. Oh, yeah. I mean, but but I would make this as a defense of, of Michael as an artist. Uh, the fact that he could bullshit that so convincingly and became such a sex symbol. And like, look, I mean, even like going into the late eighties and all that, I mean, Michael kept that, uh, that up. I mean, he made some of the best love songs and the best sexual songs in the history of rock and roll, even though, uh, you know, Brooke Shields was clearly a beard. Madonna was a beard, but yeah, I mean, Prince, I mean, like, the list of singers and models and uh, notable uh, uh, celebrity and uh, culturally interesting females that that guy fucked is probably, what, about as long as the Dead Sea Scrolls? Michael Jackson made teenage girls scream. Prince made made teenage girls come in their pants, and he made adult women want to fuck him. That's the difference. And they did. I said, <laughs> and they uh, did. Ma- Ma- Michael made him scream in the audience. Uh, Prince made him scream in, in private. In the, in the bedroom, yeah. Yeah and, so. and, yeah, and that's the thing. So 
Prince versus Michael. Yeah, it's those those periods it, it, are just extraordinary. So probably. yeah, and to and to bring some conclusion, go ahead, go ahead. Let me just say that Michael's Off the Wall is a great record. It's a fantastic disco funk album. In fact, but it's a disco funk album. And disco funk albums were a dime a dozen during the late 1970s. Hell, I think Parliament's album of that same year as Off the Wall, Golly Holla Stupid, is every bit as good as Jackson's album. Chic, Sister Sledge, Donna Summer, Cool and the Gang, they all put out disco funk jams that rivaled what Michael Jackson was doing. With Dirty Mind, and to a lesser extent, Controversy, however, Prince was reinventing R&B. He was creating a new language for funk and soul music that had never been heard before. I've always felt that the two pop music figures most responsible for reinventing the, for inventing the 1980s were David Bowie, especially for all that visionary work he did during his Berlin era, and Prince. At this point, yes, Michael was the bigger pop star, and he would remain so for the next six or seven years. But musically, artistically, and more importantly, influentially, in my opinion, the decade would eventually belong to Prince. The groundbreaking, visionary, and innovative albums, Dirty Mind and Controversy, were the first two shots fired in that direction. And here's how I would respond to what you just said. There's actually three guys that defined uh, the tenor shape and sound of the 80s. Prince, David Bowie, and Michael Jackson. Mm. Uh, I will say this. I think that Michael, because he got R&B onto MTV, obviously defined the look and feel. I mean, come on, even five or six years later, you get like Orange Juice Jones and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, those guys, you know, the uh, Johnny Gill and, uh, you know, all those. And they're basically doing uh, cheap Michael uh, uh, impersonations, at least musically. But I also think that, yes, was Off the Wall uh, influenced by uh, Chic and by uh, some of those artists uh, from the mid 70s? Uh, no doubt. But Michael took it further. Uh, he put the Michael rhythm in it. He put the Michael chop falsetto in it. And he took it and he created a new kind of pop music out of it. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's become a cultural uh, cliche these days and meme, but it really was kind of Michael saying, oh, yeah, hold my beer. Uh, so that's that's it. And it really did kind of set up the 80s. And I would say, look, Michael and, and, and Prince. I, this, dis I, I disagree with Off the Wall setting up the 80s. I think Off the Wall, as great as it is, is very much of its time. Um uh, it's great. It's brilliant. And, and, and it's better than most of those bands and artists that influenced Off the Wall. I agree. But I think what Prince did was more visionary, more just out of the fucking blue inventive that nothing's ever been heard before like this. Yeah. Well, I, look, I mean, Michael, it's half and half. I mean, I'll agree with you on that. And so you make a point that undoubtedly and it's inarguable that Off the Wall is the punctuation to the 70s. Right. It's, def sure. it's definitely the period or the exclamation point or even the question mark uh, yeah. to that era of black music and, and dance hall music, uh, well, or disco music. Uh, but it, I think it does set up the 80s, like, you know, uh, with Don't Stop Till You Get Down, like Rock With You. 
I mean, come on. I mean, that that sets up the 80s uh, R&B smooth man ballad thing to the nth. I mean, look, I mean, half the songs Bobby Brown did might as well have been Rock With You Part 1 or, or <laughs> One and a Half, Part 2, Part 3, Part 4, Part 5. You know, George Foreman named all his kids George. Uh, Bobby Brown, like, ripped off uh, Rock With You about 19 times. Uh, <laughs> and But here's a common thread uh, for what it's worth and uh, – uh, just a real quick thing. The common thread that runs through David Bowie, Prince, and Michael Jackson is now Rogers uh, in yeah. terms of influence. And in uh, at least Bowie's case, I mean, Rogers came in and uh, produced <laughs> produced Let's Dance. And yeah. uh, and so actually defined that. And actually, Bowie had, you know, Bowie owes most of the money he died with in his estate yeah. to now Rogers for what it's worth. I mean, that money, yeah. that was by far his most successful record. Uh so, yeah, I mean, look, and that just speaks to the genius of Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. I mean, they were just, they were paradigm shifters. And as producers and musicians, uh, these guys as artists and musicians, uh, they, they took it that much further. But I see Michael Jackson and Prince as just working in parallel. As we've said, they have parallel lives. But even artistic influence, uh, those guys, uh, really for black music or black male music, in the eighties and into the nineties were kind of the, uh, the plus and minus to the battery. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think Prince's influence leaned more toward the hardcore. Yeah, uh, no, it did. He was a George Clinton funkadelic fan. I don't, I don't, I can't imagine Michael really getting into funk P funk that much. Yeah. Not, not, not that much. Yeah. I mean, clearly, yeah, he's, but you know, there's more Curtis Mayfield in Prince. Uh, there's yeah. probably, there's definitely more Donny Hathaway. Sly Stone. Yeah. But the, the, the thing with Michael, well, Michael clearly, uh, Ma- Marvin Gaye is a huge influence on Michael too, in terms of. And Stevie Wonder. Yeah. And Stevie Wonder, like basically the Motown uh, peers or the, you know, the, the guys that uh, he ca- basically came up with there in the late sixties and seventies. So there's clear influences uh, there. Uh, so, which again, it kind of makes our argument or my argument is that these two really kind of are the uh, panorama of black music, uh, basically from 1970 all uh, all the way to like 1989, 90, uh, when you know Teddy Ry- Teddy Riley and hip hop took over. But uh, it's it's pretty fascinating. And then with Prince, uh, Prince, uh, he I think he, you know, Michael Jackson had the crossover appeal, but. Yeah. Uh, Prince really had, uh, more legs with, with white folk, um, that think about by the nineties, the thing that's keeping, uh, that's keeping him going are the, uh, are his sort of white enthusiasts, uh, not punk guys, but almost guys like you that appreciate the guitar work at the virtuoso and then, uh, tape traders. And yeah, like I said, you know, he had, you know, with diamonds and pearls was a, a huge R and B hit. And, you know, See, he's- I, I, I always felt that in the in the U.S. because Michael Jackson in his, in his older years was way more popular in Europe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's his white. That's Michael's white audience. Yeah. Whereas Prince, I think in the U.S. maintained his black audience. Um, but his black audience in the U.S. were like the neo soul types. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. The smart and, brothers and the, the, the brothers yeah. that smoked a shitload of weed. Yeah. Maxwell. Right, right. Yeah. Th- those were those were Prince's black audience fans and people who were into hip hop and stuff like that. Those those were those were um, those were his, his his fans. And yeah, he did have his white fans, but his white fans 
were be, 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 became more like the music geek white boys. Yeah, white no, exactly. Boys. Like the tape, the tape traders and all that. And I think what we're really trying to say was that Prince's uh, music uh, gravitated more towards the collegiate. Um, yeah. I think that that's even though, I mean, I'm an exception. And again, I think that most of the folks out there probably side with Arturo at this point. Yeah. I think that part of that is just Prince's sheer volume and the fact that he never quite went away until he died. Whereas Michael had faded. I mean, the last 10 years of his career, he was pretty much a pariah. Um, but yeah, I, that's that, that's really what it is, is that Prince uh, gravitated more towards the collegiate, whereas Michael was sort of a man of the people and kind of yeah. stayed that way. Um, again, until well, his... We'll, 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 get, we'll get more into this in future episodes of this series. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Let's, let, 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 let's end it here in 1981. Michael, Michael is germinating thriller and Prince is planning uh, 1999. Okay, so after that uh, spirited and... uh... Uh, wondrous uh, talk of Prince versus Michael. Now we go uh, into our deepest, darkest, weirdest uh, uh, corners of our crates in uh, the vault, as we call it. And so, Arturo, what is your album of the week coming out of your vault? One of my favorites of the punk era. When people think of New York City, CBGB's club scene of the 1970s and all the punk and new wave music that it spawned, what bands or artists come to mind? You have Patti Smith, the punk poetess and goddess. You have the Ramones, who are the punk originators. You have Blondie, you know, that sexy, attitude-drenched pop rock. You have Television and their innovative guitar tapestries. You have um, the even more innovative uh, reinvention of the pop song idiom and exploration of African rhythms and textures that Talking Heads became legendary for. However, one band that eventually gets lost in the NYC punk name check shuffle is Richard Hell and the Voidoids, and in particular their seminal and influential 1977 debut album, Blank Generation. Born and raised in Kentucky, Richard Myers, his real name, dropped out of high school at the age of 17 in 1966 and moved to New York City, immersing himself in the arts and music scene. After spending numerous years living the decadent bohemian life that makes me wish I could get in a time machine and travel to late 60s, early 70s New York just so I can check out the underground art scene at the time, he spent time in an interesting proto-punk band from 72 to 74 called The Neon Boys. The song Love Comes in Spurts, the opening track from Blank Generation, was originally one of only four songs that The Neon Boys recorded in their lifetime. Another member of The Neon Boys was Tom Miller, an old friend of Richard's from the time they spent in a boarding school in Delaware when they were teenagers. After the Neon Boys broke up, Miller formed a new band called Television, changed his name to Tom Verlaine, and added Richard as bassist. 
and it was at this time that Richard changed his name to Richard Hell. This 1974 to 75 period that Hell was in television was crucial in the history of punk rock imagery and iconography. Hell was by far the band's most physically active member on stage, and his energetic, now cliche, pogo-hopping stage presence was augmented by his unique look. He sported spiky hair, he had ripped jeans, and torn shirts held together by safety pins. This fashion sense was not lost upon Malcolm McLaren, the British talent manager and music business impresario who would often travel to New York during this time to check out new trends and ideas for his clothing boutique, Sex, which had recently opened in London. Anyone with a decent knowledge of rock history knows that McLaren was the mastermind behind the Sex Pistols. Within a year, Johnny Rotten would be sporting the same look hell originated. While upset at first that his look, his look was blatantly ripped off over the years, Hell became more at ease with the fashion theft, uh, expressing that, quote-unquote, ideas are free property. Eventually, Hell left television due to tensions with Verlaine. I think Hell's increasing visual popularity with the band was a, was a rumored reason. And then Hell joined Johnny Thunders very briefly with the Heartbreakers in 1975. That didn't last long, and in 76, he finally formed his own band, putting his name in front and christening the band The Voidoids. They released the three-song Blank Generation EP later that year on independent label Orc Records. It became an underground hit, and the serious word-of-mouth praise landed them a deal with Sire Records, which also had talking heads. The music on the album that followed was revelatory to say the least. Coiled, angular riffs mixed with unpredictable, winding, twin guitar leads and off-kilter, signature-changing, jazzy rhythms that produced a sound akin to, like, television on cocaine. It's basically what the Voidoid sounded like. It was like a more aggressive uppity version of television and with a better sense of humor too uh hell's lyrics made nihilism and disaffection cool before the 1990s drove those sentiments into the ground with an overdose of irony misanthropic about his place in the world around him as in the title track blank generation misanthropic about romantic relationships as in the song's Love Comes in Spurts and Betrayal Takes Two, and misanthropic about the whole music scene in general, as in Down at the Rock and Roll Club, Hell never fails to deliver existential angst with his tongue firmly in his cheek. Of course, this is what saves the music from being a one-dimensional downer. Hell being bemused by the shittiness of the world rather than being depressed by it is actually oddly uplifting and empowering. However, it's no more empowering than the genuinely odd and original music that would influence other bands in the ensuing years to make pop-friendly, streamlined versions of this sound and call it New Wave. <laughs> it, isn't hard to, it isn't hard to imagine Rick Ocasek and the Cars 
making frequent trips down to New York from Boston in the period of 1975 to 77 to see what the CBGB's bands were doing. And it's even easier to see the direct line of influence from the Voidoids to bands such as the Cars, the Knack, and the Buzzcocks. Unfortunately, Hell was a heroin junkie, and it killed any forward momentum the band had. It took them five years to release a follow-up album in 1982, but by then they were no longer in the vanguard of rock as punk mutated into the safer brand known as New Wave, and the album was widely panned. Fortunately, Hell's heart truly lay in the written word. After getting off both heroin and the rock and roll train, he devoted the rest of his life to a literary career that spanned poetry, essays, short stories, memoirs, journals, and novels, while occasionally getting back with the Voidoids on occasion to play some shows. In the end, though, Blank Generation and the band that produced it belong in that canon of one-album wonders who were so great It didn't really matter what else they did afterward. So if anybody wants to get a good listen in to what, you know, know, a classic New York CBGB sound, go check out Hell and the Voidoids and their one great album, Blank Generation. Uh, So, yeah, I I agree uh, that, yeah, this album should be minted as uh, a testament and a towering testament at that to this era of uh, New Yorkish uh, music and a good call in terms of that uh, influence on those sort of quirky rhythms that came a few years later from the cars and the knack and all of that. I will say this and one final thought, and we'll just keep it uh, very, very short and pointed. Uh, How tortured uh, does one have to be to change their performance name to hell? Uh, I mean, that, I mean, that just kind of says it all, like you said, with, uh, with the spiky hair and the jeans and all that and the heroin habit and all that. Yeah. Uh, there was not a whole lot of sunny side <laughs> uh, going on there personally. So yeah, my name is Chris hell and, and, and your name is Arturo fuck off. You know, it's, uh, I, you know, it's, uh, one of the, the great, uh, this is one of the reasons I love rock and roll. And I know we were just talking about mythology with Prince, but, uh, mythos, if it wasn't for mythos, rock and roll wouldn't be rock and roll. Remember, dumb is not the same thing as bad. So most folks my age may have heard and have probably seen uh, a small little art film called Pulp Fiction. Mm. One of the great memories, and I'm sure, Arturo, uh, if there's, well, let me quiz you and I'll, you'll probably not give the answer that I'm looking for. But when you think of Pulp Fiction, what's the scene that immediately first comes to mind. Uh, Uma Uma Thurman overdosing and getting the shot of adrenaline in her chest. Okay, well, <laughs> what's second? <laughs> uh, and and don't, and, and don't say the gimp. Uh, no, I, okay. Well, anyway, so I think most people. Vin Rames getting fucked in the ass. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, but I think a lot of people. The most iconic uh, moment of that film. It's in the middle of a sequence where uh, the hitman Vincent Vega and uh, uh, Marcellus Wallace's wife uh, are having uh, their date uh, at the uh, 1950s uh, vintage uh, restaurant club. And at one point, uh, Uma tells uh, Vega, 
or Uma Thurman's the actress, John Travolta is uh, the Vincent Vega actress. Uh, she tells uh, him that he she needs to go, quote unquote, powder her nose at the bathroom, in the bathroom. And so she's walking away and you get this wonderful POV shot of Uma Thurman walking very sexily uh, in slow motion, uh, accentuating her curves and tallness. And the backup track is Link Ray's Rumble, which is perfect. Uh, it's the it's the emotion that that scene needs. It's the sexuality. It's the mystery. It's the uh, is this really a good idea to be staring at this uh, coked out uh, wife of a hitman? Uh, it's immediately an iconic scene and an iconic uh, use of music in movies. However, uh, that song had been iconic for 35 years uh, before that, because while Dick Dale and a few others get more, Richie Valens, I guess, could count on this, this sort of surfish uh, rockabilly with fuzz and amps thing uh, was becoming more uh, popular in the 50s and 60s. Well, Link Ray, probably most famous for a, uh, a swinging surf rock cover of the Batman theme, but Rumble, mm-hmm. but Rumble singular rhythm, uh, very snaky, very slinky. And he had this signature guitar sound, very echoey, very reverby, and just uh, like a, just a beast or like a lizard uh, hanging out in the bushes. Um, very exotic, very sexy, uh, and uh, just became iconic. And, you know, Link Ray is one of the great um, lost, I guess you could say. And there's a cult around him, but he's one of the great lost talents in history. However, that's not the period that I'm going to focus on, and that's not the, the Link Ray I'm going to talk about. So Link, you know, he's a California guy and uh, never made a whole lot of money and was probably troubled. Uh, and so early 70s, remember, he's a California type. And so he had a lot to say in his soul, or he was taking a, some good drugs, uh, probably both. And so in 1971, he uh, does one of what I think is one of the most striking reinventions in pop history. He comes out with his self-titled record, Link Ray. And uh, over the course of uh, this album, uh, he shows himself to have a a folky soul. But also, he has this almost odd psychedelic, I guess you could call it, or... Uh, mental gym, mentally gymnastic, eccentric gospel to him. It's got this, another distinctive beat, but it's more like a clap, thump, clap, thump, uh, sort of uh, almost like back porch uh, folk kind of thing going on. But there's, there is some of that fuzz guitar, but it's, it's faster and it's groovier and it's more in the vein of, of a lead uh, soloist. It's almost like kind of a Neil Youngish type of thing going on. There's a lot of acoustic, mm-hmm. uh, just prodigious, uh, masterful acoustic picking. And there's a lot of uh, religious and Christian uh, imagery on here, some of which is profound, some of which is goofy. And let me give you uh, an indication of the, uh, of the divide uh, there. So I think my favorite track on this, and according to Spotify, it's the most popular track with over 6 million downloads, is uh, Fire and Brimstone. 
And it's got this it almost acoustic boogie-ish thing to it. But again, with that back porch kind of, you know, clap, thump, boom, thump uh, beat yeah. uh, to it. Uh, but like wonderfully uh, folky, acoustic, almost bluesy uh, guitar line. And uh, it's really got, it's a sincere invocation of God. Now say what you want. I mean, uh, he's probably high as hell and he's a Shawnee uh, 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 a Native American from North Carolina. So there's a spiritualness there, but there's imagery of God's thunder and earthquake abilities from above and below. Uh, can't help uh, think of Acts, Acts 1 and Acts 4, uh, for all you folks that actually know the Bible out there. And it's, uh, it's really uh, profound and fun and weird. I mean, it's, it's a weird sound. On the other extreme is his song, Ice People, which is a little faster, same kind of thing, almost like a quasi-gospel thing, but it's just, uh, it's delightfully, delectably ridiculous. And maybe, uh, you know, when I first heard this record, you could think musically, maybe it's got cousins such as Harry Nelson or so, sort of other L.A. pre-Fleetwood Mac uh, yeah. um, uh, peers and influences, but then you hear this and it's like, uh, Link, uh, you know, he's one of these eccentric geniuses. Uh, all eccentric geniuses are out of their mind in their own particular way. And I think yeah. once I read this, you'll get a sense of like his version of being out of his mind. So, uh, ice people, uh, here's the lyric. They're just made of ice. They don't treat their fellow man very nice. You wear your hair long as Jesus did. They'll crucify you. You're not part of the establishment. You stand up for your rights. They call you a fool if they if you don't go to war. You're not living by the golden rule. Ice people, they're just made of ice. They don't treat their fellow man very nice. The red man lives and dies on the reservation. And the black man just lives anywhere he can. And the poor white man, he doesn't live any better. He can't say I'm red, I'm black, I'm yellow, I'm tanned. We're all caught up together, like the buffalo on the plains. We're just shooting sport for ice people. We're just a game, ice people. They're made of ice. They don't treat their fellow man very nice. Ice people, they just made of ice. No, they don't treat their fellow man very nice, and so on and so on and so on until it goes out. So, so, who, are the, so who, are the, who are the ice people? They're just a corporate white guys? Yeah, basically it's the, uh, it, it's the man you know, whatever the man, oh, man, the man would have been in the seventies. Think of the, the cor- ruling elite corporate superclass. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're the ones selling, sending us to, um, to, to sending us to war. Now uh, that was done much more elegantly by lots of artists and lots, lot more profoundly, you know, fortunate son or whatever you want to say. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's just a very hippy dippy. That's almost like if Angela Davis was writing uh, second grade curriculums or like first grade curriculums. It's like take Dr. Yeah. Seuss and Angela Davis, put them together. And that might be what they came up with for uh, uh, first graders in 1971. And so uh, it's, it's spectacularly goofy. Uh, and uh, one last thought about Link Ray. And again, it's, it's a great album. It's worth checking out. Um, he, uh, this is a guy who took one singular beat, abandoned it and created another singular beat. I mean, that's one of the themes of this episode is these singular beats, but but the fact that this guy was bright enough to tear his up and create another one, uh, 
Yeah. Puts him on a level as Prince because Prince did that at least what three times uh, yeah. in his career. But uh, the uh, cover, and I'll leave it at this. Uh, and this is an, uh, indicative of an old joke between Arturo and I. Uh, he makes it very clear that he's Native American on the cover. Uh, side <laughs> profile with the long hair and the the sort of the skinny headband thing. Uh, he's not in the woods. Which, uh, which makes him unique during this period from 67 to 72, where all these folkies, they really wanted you to know they like nature and that they lived in cabins <laughs> in the woods. And, you know, like you know, Bob Dylan chilling with his Indian tribe on uh, just John Wesley Hardy. Van Morrison, George Harrison. Yeah. Van Morrison, like three times. Yeah, fair. He has three album covers of him in the woods. Oh, yeah, Fairport yeah. Convention. You know, all, all Fairport. yeah, even, uh, even Led Zeppelin had the guy with the sticks, you know. <laughs> uh, so, and in 1971, so, uh, mm-hmm. I found humor in that, but now Link Ray, uh, man was a genius. Um, his surf rock stuff, uh, is absolutely essential. Uh, check out, um, there's a, a singles collection from 19, uh, 1970 or 1960, uh, which is uh, Link Ray and his Raymen, uh, which is a compilation of all the stuff they were doing in the uh, late fifties and very early sixties. That's essential, but check out this record because it's a curveball and it's very much of 1971 California. And honestly, I think it's one of the better, uh, albums, uh, of that era, uh, from there. And with that, we exit the vault and, uh, we come to the end of this episode. Very exciting. Uh, this is going to be an ongoing series uh, of these Prince versus Michael uh, episodes. We're uh, we're tracking it uh, chronologically, and we hope that uh, we bring ourselves enough into it to mix the subjective and the objective, and that that you love it. Um, uh, I, we you know we we think it's our uh, version of the the strongman hitting the um, hitting the uh, thing at the carnival and dinging the bell. This is this is this is us at our finest. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude. Stay crude. Stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.